Good evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. As we have recovered from and moved beyond the holiday season, we are now approaching tax season. Filing taxes can be a complicated process and making mistakes can be costly, both in terms of money and time. On this evening's show, we're going to talk with tax experts who can offer information and tips to assist you as you prepare to file your 2019 taxes. And we have joining us in the studio, Matthew James. He is the director of the NCCU School of Law Low Income Taxpayer Clinic. And also joining us in the studio is Jonathan Kerr. He is the attorney fellow for the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic here at NCCU School of Law. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, sir. So why don't we first get some background information from you? And Matthew, we'll start with you. You're the director of our low-income taxpayer clinic. Um, how did you become involved in, in law and tax? So I um, actually was looking at either going back and getting an MBA or going to law school. And someone told me that if you had an undergraduate in business, you didn't necessarily need an MBA. So I decided I was going to take the LSAT and... Then I went out to the University of Denver for law school. Um, I just happened to get into tax because the law program out there also has a master's of tax. And so I attached it to um, my degree and I did a dual degree program and thought, well, if I don't like it, I can always drop it. But I only had a certain amount of time to add it. And so I attached it and I just loved it. And it was just from there on, I, that's all I was going to do. And that seems to be a common theme for tax lawyers, which is, you, you know, uh, it wasn't a favorite course of mine in law school. But right. for those who practice tax, mm-hmm. there's something about it that just really resonates with yeah. them. So. Yeah. And I, I, I knew I didn't want to go into litigation. So I get a little taste of it when I go to tax court, you know, two to three times a year. And then the rest of the time I can do my transactional stuff. All right. All right. And Jonathan, how did you become interested in tax? So I... In undergrad, I didn't know really what I wanted to do until the first time I needed to hire an attorney. And I realized how helpful it is having someone who can just take a calm, objective view of the situation. And that motivated me to come to law school. I really didn't focus on tax in law school. Um, If there's one thing we can count on as Americans, it's that every act or transaction that we go through the government will try to tax. Um, Once landing in tax, I found it quite enjoyable. when your opponent is the IRS day in and day out. (laughs) So Matthew, tell us about the low-income taxpayer clinic. Sure, so I do have to give a little disclaimer before I get into it too much. Um, So the tax clinic is partially funded by a grant from the IRS um, or the Department of Treasury, but we're not affiliated with it. Um, We don't get any special treatment with the IRS and utilizing any of our services will not affect any taxpayers' rights before the IRS. So 
uh, our clinic, we have three primary um, prongs of service. The first one is representation, and in that we have students and volunteers, um, and then Attorney Kerr and myself, we represent taxpayers um, before the IRS, which could be anything from uh, an audit to a, some kind of collection alternative if they're having trouble paying um, or if they're appealing something that happened. And then we also represent taxpayers before the United States tax court. And that's, you haven't been able to resolve your issue with the IRS and it's progressed uh, to the point where litigation is necessary. Um, the, the other two prongs are, are uh, a little bit um, similar. One is our education and one is outreach. And so with outreach, we, uh, for example, we're going this weekend to an event at Fayetteville State to, um, that will help veterans with some of their issues, including tax. Uh, but that's more of us getting out there and really showing people what the clinic can do, how we can help them. Um, and then education is something similar to this or the Virtual Justice Project. And we are, we pick a topic and then we're going to talk about that topic for, you know, an hour or so. Um, we have, we're, we're still expanding our education and outreach prongs. So um, we're looking for community partners and seeing what we can do to get our name out there and educate more taxpayers. Well, you know, the, uh, a lot of people are afraid of the word tax. Uh, yeah. It's uh, a part of our daily lives. We pay taxes right. on, on everything, and uh, the uh, reporting uh, season uh, causes all kinds of trepidation nice. uh, among people because uh, they've, one, not kept records. Uh, and uh, they figure that uh, somehow the IRS is going to uh, come to get them, mm -hmm. even if everything is, uh, is, is in place. Uh, you know, I tell students all the time that uh, one of the most important classes that they can take in law school is taxes. You know, since they uh, expect <laughs> to earn money, mm -hmm. uh, you are going to regularly have to deal uh, mm -hmm. with the uh, taxation uh, end of it. And you figure out how it is that you can minimize mm -hmm. uh, right. the amount of uh, taxes that uh, that you have to pay. So can you, you know, spend a few minutes uh, with our audience talking with them about uh, the kinds, I guess, the typical issues? that uh, people uh, encounter uh, as we enter this season and then as you then prepare for the next uh, tax uh, reporting period. Okay. So some of the issues we've seen are, you know, in 2017 we had that big reform um, where, where a lot of our provisions, our code provisions um, changed. And so one thing we noticed last year and coming into this season is are those people that used to be able to itemize their deductions, they can't exceed the new standard deduction. And so we have a lot of people that don't understand why they can't you know, take their charitable contributions and their um, home mortgage, home interest more um, amount. So it's, it's been a little bit of a, an education as we go through the tax preparation season and saying, you know, unfortunately, things changed. 
there were some benefits. And um, in, at the very end of December, we had some legislative extenders that were retroactively applied. And so people can go back in and modify their 2018 returns. But there were several things that, that changed where people just, they, they didn't know of the adjustments. And so now they're coming in and we have to sit and say, well, I know this is how you've done it for the last 15 years, but now it's a little bit different. And, and how is it that you're having those communications with individuals? Are these folks who are calling up the clinic? Is this part of the education and the outreach? Uh, a little bit of both. We, we do field a lot of calls and we can consult with almost anybody. We do have a few eligibility requirements to take somebody on as a, as a client, but we'll, we'll sit and consult with um, almost anybody. And it can just be that, you know, they went to have their taxes prepared and they didn't agree with what had happened. So they came and they say, we're just looking for a little more information. We say, well, you know, your CPA was right. Things have changed. Unfortunately, this is how it is. We also assist in supervising the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, which is located, uh, well, a, a branch of it is located at the School of Law. And that is a program that helps people prepare taxes. And so sometimes it's it's during that that we, you know, the students are there to help prepare and we're sitting with the clients and saying, unfortunately, you know, that that charitable contribution you made is very nice, but you're just you're not going to exceed the standard anymore. So, you know, it's we're not going to be able to use it unless you want to not take such a big deduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and it's the the calls and then a lot of it is through the VITA program and really sitting with the clients as they come in and just saying, this is how things are now, at least until things sunset in 2025. Mm. So Jonathan, you are a fellow with the the clinic. So how did you get involved as a fellow and what's your role? So after I graduated, I was obviously looking for work. And what year did you graduate again? In 18. Okay. All right. And I was looking for work and I come down to the clinic to speak to some of uh, previous professors, and they told me tax. And I really enjoyed law, I, administrative law when I was in law school. I focused on veterans law mostly, and I thought I would take a swing at it, and I, I, I really enjoyed I enjoy being able to sit down and kind of work with the students on the more practical side of the law. And this clinic and low-income taxpayer clinics all over the country are a great opportunity for students to get involved in that administrative part. So you mentioned veterans law. So um, Matthew mentioned that part of the outreach you all will be doing uh, in Fayetteville, you'll be able to talk with veterans about maybe some of their tax issues. What unique problems might veterans pose that would uh, make an outreach to them um, amenable? So there were several issues for veterans that, that stood out. One of them is kind of just passed us by last year. For a while, the military was discharging people under medical separations and giving them lump sum payments and taxing them completely incorrectly. So the IRS has opened up until last summer. We got most of those through where you could file amended returns and get some of the refund back that you were improperly taxed on when you got out. Aside from that, there's some rental property issues with uh, military veterans, especially active duty military, who are moving from duty station to duty station and having trouble figuring out how to deal with those, that rental income on their taxes. 
And so if someone can't, if they're interested and they've got some questions, some veterans, you know, uh, related questions, and they can't make the outreach program in Fayetteville, can they, how would they reach the, the clinic? So anyone can reach our clinic at um, 919-530-7166. That's our reception. And we actually, in, at the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic, represent clients all over the entire state of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you, the VITA program, uh, well, let me, most people at this time of the year um, are looking for their refund mm-hmm. uh, because they have figured that the government has taken too much out of their paycheck. And that as an entitlement, Mm -hmm. they are supposed to be getting some of that back now. And uh, uh, many of them are now disappointed Mm -hmm. when they come to you and find that there's been these changes. What are the major changes that has uh, altered Mm -hmm. that expectation? and that now people have to be concerned about as they prepare for the next tax season. So the the two big changes are the deduction that that we talked about a little bit, the standard versus itemized. People um, used to be able to get a little bit more, but the the main one is that the exemption amount for uh, your self-independence was reduced to zero. And so it's effectively been suspended, which means that Prior to this, your dependents would help lower the, um, your gross income, which would then lower your tax amount. That would generate a greater refund. Um, now we don't have that, so they get the standard deduction for themselves and maybe the spouse, but that's it. So we're not able to reduce the gross income by as much. And then also the withholding tables that um, the, the employers typically use in order to withhold from the paycheck were adjusted and not everybody went through and did a, they call it a paycheck checkup. And so that meant that they didn't withhold as much as they thought they had been withholding. So at the end of the year when they filed their taxes, uh, they had withheld a little bit less. We, the amount of their liability went up a little bit and it, so it's generating smaller refunds or we had a lot of people that owed this past year this 2019 cycle is the second year, so it's been a little bit better. People realized when they owed in 18 that they needed to go in and adjust things. Um, but there were still those that, um, you know, for example, at the VITA program, we had several people uh, have their taxes prepared, realize they owe, and then say, no, you did it wrong, and they left. Mm-hmm. So. Well, let me, you know, now the, the, going back to the standard deduction mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that we used to have, yes, and that was a set amount mm-hmm. that was then multiplied by every dependent that you had in your home. So the the standard deduction can only be one or two. That's for you and your spouse. The, I mean, not now, but I'm talking about before. No, all, the standard deduction is always like that. Okay, the exemption right. is what used the to exemption. Exist. Okay, right, right. now. How then does that, because, you know, each, each person was, could count a certain amount of money mm-hmm. that was exempted from their taxes. Right. What is the process now that's different than what it was before the uh, Tax uh, Reconciliation mm-hmm. Act was right. passed? So the, the, overall, the taxing formula is still the same. 
the as you go through, you have your pre-exclusion gross income. You go to gross income. Um, so pre-exclusion things are they never get counted. Those are things like gifts. People just you know you you don't ever have to put those on your return. So you have gross income. You have your above the line deductions, which are uh, specifically listed in by statute, and those are adjusted before you get to your adjusted gross income. And then the standard and itemized deduction is next. That was increased, so we see a little bit um, more beneficial result from that. But okay. then, how much was what was the increase? The it dollar went, amount went from what to what? It went from six thousand three hundred and fifty to this year. It's twelve thousand two hundred. So every person, well, I guess of the the, the two family members, mm-hmm. they can now deduct twelve thousand. Twelve thousand two hundred per person. So a married couple could do. Twenty-four thousand four. Right, which seems like uh, a real gift. It does, yeah, uh, it does. Because you don't have to substantiate anything. So, which just means you don't have to prove any of those expenses like you may with an itemized deduction. Right. Now, what happens then? Then with the, uh, uh, the well, we're going to have to take our break uh, right now. This is the uh, legal legal uh, review, and we're talking about tax matters. And as 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 we talk about tax matters, there's a lot of confusion. And there's a lot of confusion with you as you now uh, seek to uh, prepare it. Uh, We're going to come back in a uh, few moments. want you to stay with us as we conclude, as we continue uh, with uh, this uh, discussion about uh, your uh, 2019 uh, tax return. So we'll be right back. I'm Nastasia Harris a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. The United States Census of 2020 will officially begin for most households in March. The census is a brief survey that is sent to every household in the country every 10 years. Article 1, Section 2 of the United States Constitution requires that the country count every living person in the United States, regardless of citizenship or immigration status. Census data informs our nation's most important decisions. It provides critical data that lawmakers and many others use to provide daily services and support for people in their communities. For example, the number of congressional representatives in a state are determined by population, with the most populous states receiving the most seats. Additionally, the census determines how the federal government spends billions of dollars on services related to the social welfare of people within the country. If people are not counted, their communities will receive less representation in government and fewer resources. Participation in the census is required by law. Pursuant to United States Code Title 13, anyone over the age of 18 who fails to participate in the census or willfully provides false information on the census could be subject to substantial fines or even jail time. You can respond to the census by phone, online, or through paper form. Beginning in mid-May, census takers will visit households that have not yet responded to the census. Participation in the census by everybody makes for a healthier democracy. Now is the time to get involved. More information is at aclu.org and censuscounts.org. Virtual justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasha Harris. Thanks for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, legal legal review. We're talking about 
uh, your uh, 2019 taxes. This is 2020, and uh, you report on uh, this uh, income and expenses for 2019. Uh, now, April 15th uh, is the, uh, the deadline, and uh, although we seem to be a couple of weeks away uh, from that, uh, if you've not filed, the time is going to run quickly. Uh, for you to uh, to get that uh, done, and you don't want to be caught out at the last minute trying to uh, prepare it. But when we took our break, we were trying to draw the distinctions between what the old uh, uh, standard deductions and exemption uh, process was like, and how it is different now uh, with the uh, with the new law. And Matthew, you were explaining that uh, to us before you we rudely interrupted you to take our break. <laughs> so the we ha- we have that increased standard now, the standard deduction, um, and then below that we used to be able to take out the exemptions, which are you get one per person or dependent that you're claiming on your taxes. So that was effectively um, canceled, right? So that's been suspended until the sunset of the provision. So that's where we see. We were seeing a lot of adjustment because families with, um, you know, two or more kids were receiving a greater deduction there. So maybe a, a married couple, they're benefiting now because of the heightened standard deduction because they didn't have to worry about exemptions, as it were. But now those families that have kids that may need the money the most are having increased um, liabilities versus before. And I don't remember that being emphasized when uh, this uh, new tax law was proposed. And it mm-hmm. just makes you think about, you know, which uh, families, what types of families. So, you know, uh, just in which communities are benefiting from this law and which communities are, are not. Right. So uh, thank you for pointing out that that difference. Mm-hmm. Um you mentioned this paycheck checkup. And so can you just talk about that a little bit? So for, for those, because that's something that people should really do kind of regularly. So what, what exactly is that? And what would you, what do you suggest folks do when they're looking at their, their paycheck to make sure that they have the type of um, exemptions? That they so need? if you look up on the IRS website, if you search for paycheck checkup, they have a new online tool. And this year it works really well. Um, you'll want to do this anytime you get a raise to make sure that that raise hasn't changed your obligations. And it's especially helpful pe- for people who have more than one job mm-hmm. because each job is probably only taxing you as if that was the only income you had coming in. This tool will actually let you put in several different W-2 um, or paycheck information. Mm-hmm. What you'll need to go fill it out is just your latest pay stub that has year-to-dates on it with all the taxes you've paid. And once you punch in all the information and answer the questions they have, this tool will actually spit out, this is what you're withholding now, and this is what you should increase. And we generally advise people that if you have a couple jobs and one of them steady, that you want to adjust your withholding on that job to cover for the other ones, because it's a little easier to budget. Now, the adjustments uh, that, that, that you make as a part of the uh, paycheck checkup, what is it that you are increasing or decreasing uh, during that process? So you'll be increasing or decreasing the amount that your company is withholding from your paycheck to give to the IRS. Um, In the United States, we have a pay-as-you-go tax system. 
So each month or each paycheck, they withhold a little bit from your paycheck and they go ahead and pay it to the federal government. Um, what you're going to be adjusting is how much money they're actually holding out of your check. Well, you know, I, I uh, <laughs> often uh, tell people that uh, if you work, uh, the government is going to get their money before you get yours, you know, and the yes, uh, employer is uh, obligated uh, to take that uh, money out of what you've earned and then to send it in uh, to uh, to the IRS uh, in your uh, favor. And I think, but that was one of the ways that people would, I guess, bank, that's my term, uh, 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 additional monies uh, that they could then get back as a part of the uh, uh, refund, uh, why was that a bad idea uh, to rely upon this excess deductions that you can get back at a later point? Well, generally speaking, you want to owe very little or get a very small return at the end of the year because that means you kept your own money to earn interest on throughout the year instead of the government. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, as I have most of my life. It's more important that you don't get any surprise bills mm. at the end mm. of the year. So you want to make sure you're withholding enough, even if you are letting the government earn the interest on it for a while, to make sure that you don't have that disruption in your monthly budget. Because mm-hmm. getting that tax bill, as you well, as you noted mm-hmm. with the VITA program, that there were people that were surprised, uh, which actually raises the question, who can take advantage of, of VITA? So there used to be an income limit to VITA. That was actually, um, they, they got rid of that. It's set by each program or each location. So um, various organizations receive a grant to host VITA, and they can determine where it's at. So generally speaking, we, we say usually between 56 and 66,000 for a family. Um, so, so that would just be a, no children. but it really depends on where you go. Um, there are also some programs that, although VITA is typically free, they'll charge like a nominal fee for things they say, like copies and that kind of thing. So um, VITA has a search tool, or the IRS has a search tool for VITA on their website. And you can go in and punch in your zip code and it'll pull up all the locations near you. Um, but for the most part, so for example, here at the university, um, we don't really set a, a hard standard. We just say it's you need to be kind of within 300 to 400% of poverty, and we'll kind of go from there. Um, it's more that VITA has limited amount of tools available. So because there are a lot of volunteers and students, they can't do these very complex returns. And so we're really looking more for issues that will fall outside of the scope of VITA. So uh, that would be something like, um, if they have uh, depreciation schedules for rental property, that's not something VITA can typically handle. All right. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Jonathan, you mentioned doing this paycheck check if you have multiple jobs, which raises this issue that we find a lot of people in now, which is having a side hustle or two mm-hmm. and not having a full appreciation of the tax implications of that. Mm-hmm. Can you two talk about what you have experienced or seen 
when people have a second or third job and they are unawares of how that's going to affects, affect their taxes? So we, we actually see a lot of this in our clinic. And one of the biggest things we see is people who work for a rideshare company or one of these delivery companies that are 1099 employees. So they're, we mentioned a minute ago that in the United States we have a pay-as-you-go system. If you don't have an employer that's withholding money from you every month or every paycheck and paying it to the government, you have to make quarterly tax payments. And most people out there downloading an app on their phone and helping people get around town don't assume that they now have this new obligation to make quarterly tax payments. And at the end of the year, if your liability is too high, you will be penalized on top of the liability you have for not actually making those quarterly payments throughout the year. Now, That's, what's a 1099 employee, just for our audience uh, sake? Yes, sir. So generally there's two types of a 1099 employee is more of a contractor. Um, most of the rideshare companies in the country say that they don't actually employ the people mm-hmm. who work for them. So Uber, Uber or Lyft mm-hmm. and those kind of things. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. That their employees are just contractors. Mm-hmm. All right, now, for, uh, uh, for those individuals who have traditional jobs, you know, where they are working with two different employers, one full-time the others are part-time. What is it that they need to uh, look out for as they prepare their uh, W-4 form uh, to uh, designate withholding from those jobs? So so one thing we do need to kind of let everybody know is the W-4 was completely overhauled this last year. It used to be based on exemptions because the exemptions are zero now, um, a lot of people still have this mentality like, oh, I claim zero or seven on my W-4. So that doesn't exist anymore. It's a a little more robust formula. They still help you, but that's what the paycheck, chep- paycheck checkup can help with. Um, recently, there was some guidance put out that the employers can go through and actually Uh, almost reset your W-4. So for example, the university here did that. Uh, They went through and everybody became single unless you're married. And um, they, what was equivalent to zero before, right? They just reduced everybody to kind of the base status. And you had to affirmatively go in and make an adjustment, which a lot of people need to do if they have that second job. So everybody this year should go through and do the paycheck checkup. And the new W-4 is, um, it's more of a formula. So it, it has instructions on the top still, but um, you need to go through and actually kind of fill things out. It'll ask how many jobs you have and uh, you'll go through and enter all that information. You can do it electronically or just handwrite it on there and then give whatever you want to adjust to the employer. Mm-hmm. Now this is confusing. So what if I just say, well, the hell with I don't, I'm not gonna file. <laughs> um, it's not a great idea. <laughs> you should always file your taxes. Uh, and at, why is that? So as tax attorneys, um, we like people to file because it starts the statute of limitations, which means IRS typically only has three years to investigate something going on. Um, but there are a lot of reasons why someone should file. Uh, we've kind of gone over what why they have to file. So if you're self-employed and earn $500, or I'm sorry, $400, 
you have to file if you um, have a um, there are these losses that you're going to try to take you need to file uh, if you, your income exceeds the standard deduction you're going to need to file but people that should file um, we advise a lot of the students here that they should file because of refundable credits or if they had part-time jobs where some they were w-2 employees and had a little bit of withholding um, they can get that money back instead of because the alternative is you just gave the government your money which you know we don't like mm -hmm. so uh, you can get that that money back um, people that are going to claim their earned income tax credit maybe they didn't generate a ton of income to exceed the standard but they could still get a little something back um, we recommend that they they do file and the other part I guess is that it's a crime right. not to file it is so um, there's because you can go to jail <laughs> for not filing yeah um, a lot of people are afraid some the IRS is just gonna come and take them and take them to jail it it has to be a little bit more to actually go to jail for it but they will penalize you heavily and the even if you can't afford to pay the bill right now, it's always better to file because the failure to file penalty is significantly higher than the failure to pay penalty. Um, so you want to make sure you at least get it in there and then you can deal with um, how, how to pay it a little bit later. There's one more scenario where you have to file as mm -hmm. well. So with the Affordable Care Act, you have the choice whether you want to have the premiums whether you want to pay the premiums and get a big tax credit at the end of the year for it based on your income, or whether you want the government to pay the premiums for you. It's the advanced premiums throughout the year. If you choose that you want the government to pay those premiums throughout the year, which the vast majority of the country does, then you have to file a tax return at the end of the year to reconcile that the amount of money that you told the Affordable Care people you were going to make is what you actually made. All right, and, and so um, what's the status? So of course we know once uh, President Trump came into office, a uh, lot of litigation about the Affordable Care Act. What's the status of the Affordable Care Act and the um, you know premium uh, penalty? Or if you don't have health insurance, you're gonna get penalized and uh, you having to pay that through your taxes. So. Currently, there is no penalty. The penalty has been reduced to zero, and there is no mandate to have health insurance federally. Some states do still have a mandate in place, so anyone should check with their state to ensure they don't have one. As far as getting through the court system, I think they are hopeful for summer that we may actually get some answers to our questions on the individual mandate. Now, you, you mentioned uh, file and pay. Uh, and um, can you explain what you mean by file and pay? Sure. So at um, if you file your taxes um, and you didn't have enough withholding or you didn't make those estimated tax payments, then chances are you're going to have a bill at the end of the year. That bill ha comes due on the date, the due date of the return, which is this year is April 15th. And so you are technically supposed to have paid enough throughout the year, but if you don't, you need to make the rest of the payment before April 15th. If you're making quarterly payments, uh, the last quarterly payment for the year is actually in January of the following year. So for instance, 2019's last payment was due around January 15th, 
give or take a day or so. Um, but regardless of whether you paid enough or not throughout the year, it's the remainder of it is due on April 15th. Mm-hmm. So this notion of uh, uh, earn and pay mm-hmm. during the year when they take out money, if they've not take, taken out enough at the end mm-hmm. of that uh, year, then by April 15th, you have to divvy up. Correct. And you have to make mm-hmm. make that whole. Yeah. And if you, what if you're unable to pay though? I mean, you, you file, which is required, uh, but then you get to April 15th and you have an outstanding balance of $3,700 and you don't have $3,700. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do? Flee the country? Or? Yes, immediately. <laughs> uh, no, you call us and we can help. <laughs> uh, there are three primary options. Uh, there's a status called currently non-collectible, which is basically saying, okay, I, I know I owe, but I just can't pay. So it's it's a hardship status and basically kind of puts your account on hold. Interest and penalties will still accrue. So you don't, it's, I like to call it a Band-Aid position. It's just kind of a temporary until you can figure some things out. You can try an offer and compromise, which is that negotiated uh, amount that you're going to settle out. And then an installment agreement, which is what most people do. And the easiest way to do that is just to go to the IRS's website and fill it out. There's a reduced fee to do it that way. And you can get into an installment agreement where you're making monthly payments or you have them take the money out of your paycheck directly each month when you get that paid. Um, and just to, to add one little thing, you, you can extend past, um, you get an automatic six month extension to go past April 15th, but that is only to file. You you always have to pay before April 15th. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and we're talking about your income tax. And uh, it is a scary notion for us, and it's a scary notion for you. Uh, we're going to take a break and come right back and uh, continue uh, with uh, this discussion. And uh, this is a, a discussion that you need to pay some serious attention to. We'll be right back. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I am a current 1L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and these are your weekly announcements. On April 4th, from 8.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m., the Orange County Community Remembrance Coalition will host a one-day event comprised of panel discussions, lectures, performances, and workshops. This event seeks to encourage the continued work of investigative journalism while also focusing upon increasing the number of reporters and editors of color. The coalition will celebrate the pioneering services and skills of black journalists, advocates, and educators, such as Ida B. Wells Barnett, who through her actions shed the light of truth across the nation on lynching from the 1890s to the 1930s. The panel discussions will feature veteran journalists, such as Nicole Hannah-Jones and Ron Nixon, both of which are founders of the Ida B. Wells Society. On Monday, March the 16th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 7 o'clock p.m., the Virtual Justice Project will host an event on how student loan debt impacts your credit score. This event will take place at the North Carolina Central University Turner Law Building. Then on Wednesday, March the 18th, from 6 o'clock p.m. to 8 o'clock p.m., the Virtual Justice Project will host an event on Raise the Age. 
This event will discuss how this new initiative will impact our youth in North Carolina. This event will take place at the Turner Law Building of the North Carolina Central University School of Law. For more information regarding the law school or the Virtual Justice Project, please visit the NCCU School of Law website at law.nccu.edu. My name is Reginald Woods II, and this has been your weekly announcements. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about filing 2019 taxes, which are due April 15th of this year. And we have with us in the studio Attorney Matthew James, who is the director of the NCCU Law Low Income Taxpayer Clinic, and also Attorney Jonathan Kerr, who is the fellow with our taxpayer clinic. And uh, Matthew, right before the break, you were talking about um, the need, what you should do in the event you're not able to pay. And you were making the point that even though there is um, available a six-month extension to file, that that does not prevent the accrual of interest if you do not pay. If, and so if right. you don't pay, will you also be penalized even if you get the extension? Yes. So that the payment is due on April 15th. So the failure to pay penalty will start to accrue in theory after they have to make a demand for it and then it'll begin to accrue. So you've got the penalty plus you've got the interest that's right. accruing. And, and penalties we may be able to help with. We can almost never get rid of interest. It's now, how, how much is the interest and how much are the penalties that, uh, that attach to the failure to pay? So the interest is... It varies each quarter, but it's typically three points over whatever the federal interest rate is. So it ends up being somewhere around 5% usually. Um, failure to pay and failure to file actually increase over time. So over five, typically five months, it'll be 0.5% increasing each month, and they usually cap out around 25%. Mm, but they can add up. percent. Yeah, pretty. They so can add up very quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of accumulating interest and penalties, you're not able to pay that. Mm -hmm. What is it that the uh, IRS can do? So they have a lot of tools. We will. When we're teaching the students, we typically call them the most powerful collection agency. Um, <laughs> the, the easiest thing for them to do is attach liens to things. And their lien attaches to a person, which means it's all property um, that you have currently or in the future may own. So those liens um, are the easiest way for them to at least get their hands on something, even if they're not physically taking it yet. They're saying, look, we have an interest in that. Um, the other way is to levy, which is to actually seize property. Uh, for the most part, we don't see this too often in the low-income taxpayer setting, but it is something that's available to them, and it, and it does happen. I know over the last year they've increased, I want to say, 
there was something like 500 more revenue officers. And this is the first time they've been able to hire in, I think, 10 years or so. So enforcement is getting, is starting to increase. Um, and those levies, so we don't see people physically driving out to, to um, actually take things. Like people are always worried they're going to lose their house and their, well, no, our clients don't have boats, but in theory, mm-hmm. um, or cars, things like that. And, and there are always things that we can do to help protect those items because we know people need their car to get to work. IRS can't get their money if the clients can't work. Um, but it's really easy then for le- to levy bank accounts and they will just reach in, pull all that money out. Same thing with social security. That does have a limit to it. They can only take 15%, but it's fairly easy for them to attach to that and then just start taking from their monthly check, which is usually not a ton of money. And if you have a future refund coming, they will take that as well. Yes, that is the easiest thing for them Mm -hmm. to take. And Mm -hmm. they will almost always do that. Even if we were able to get into some scenario where, you know, maybe we get them into hardship status, which means they're not going to levy anything, they'll still take the refund. That's that's just gone every time. Now, there used to be this notion that uh, the IRS at best will only audit maybe 1% mm-hmm. of, uh, of filers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that there is a 99% chance that I'm not going to get audited mm-hmm. because I know that if I get audited, then I'm going to come up short because I don't have the supporting documentation uh, that's necessary to uh, 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 support uh, the uh, claims that I've made on my on my uh, mm-hmm. uh, return. Uh, what's the present thinking uh, on that, or what's the what's the four one one on that? Well, as a practitioner, um, you should always be prepared in case they audit. Um, I mean, I, it, it's difficult to put a percentage to it, especially with that they had a, a little increase in that budget and they started hiring more. Um, so. It's it's not really clear, I, and as far as we advise, I mean, just it's best to just always be prepared and have what you need to have. Which kind of takes us back to you know Jonathan's point about the the side hustlers, especially the you know shared economy, and um, what type of documentation are people typically missing? So, so you mentioned that they're not making those quarterly payments. They're yes. getting this money. They're not making this quarterly payment. But I suspect that there's also an issue with them not having the documentation available in order to support, you know, their claims for deduction. Yes. Yeah, so that's another big issue is expenses for rideshare drivers. So it. The burden is ultimately on us to make sure we're doing the proper thing with our taxes. Um, even if you're using a software or having other people prepare, the burden's on you to make sure you're reporting it correctly. As far as rideshare drivers go, they obvious they often don't keep the proper records in order to claim their expenses, such as mileage. The government the government will offer you a mileage deduction for any time you are. You have a passenger in your vehicle. Also, going back and forth to pick up passengers. And they'll also offer different expenses for things you purchase for your passengers for your car, such as water, uh, charge, cell phone chargers for them to use while in the backseat. 
anything, any general operating expense of a business. But most of these rideshare drivers have no idea that they should be recording these things. Mm -hmm. And the companies they work for don't tell them they should be because they're trying to avoid any look of control over them as employees. So while these rideshare companies often track this in-car mileage when there's a passenger sitting in the back seat of your car, they don't track any of the mileage between trips, which is going to be the majority of a rideshare driver's mileage. If I drove somebody out to the middle of Person County and dropped them off, I'm not going to sit out there in the middle of nowhere hoping somebody else wants a ride out there. I'm going to drive back into Durham. You get all that extra mileage. And if you're not tracking that yourself, either through logbook that you're taking contemporaneously or they make a bunch of apps now that will track it all for you, then you won't be able to take that expenses against your income. And you're just leaving all that money on the table. So not only do you have the problem where people may not may be claiming, you know, certain business deductions without having the documentation. On the other hand, you have some people that could take the deduction and may not be fully aware of it. And they're just, you know, leaving that money on the table, which now raises this question of when should you seek professional advice? I mean, this is a complex area. So. If you're self-employed or you find a side hustle, that's the point at which you should seek some sort of advice to make sure that you were doing everything right from the beginning. Because once you have a problem and come to us, there's a little bit we can do to help you recreate some records and, and find some of the stuff that you haven't kept contemporaneous documents for. But really, it's, it's at that point where you start making the money. If you come and seek out some sort of advice on how you should be managing this new venture, um, you can head off a lot of the issues that you're going to have. Well, what about those people who uh, who are paid under the table, uh, the uh, part of the uh, cash economy, uh, where uh, no records are kept? Uh, how can or how does the government track? Uh, that money. So we, we've had several clients that wind up in this situation. And I'm it, surprised it, you only had a several. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it really creates a problem if you've been challenged on it. Um, one issue we see is a lot of people who run businesses like that also happen to fall within the sweet spot for the earned income credit, where you get the largest amount of money, which is also going to be a return that's audited more frequently than a different type of return. And can you explain what the earned income credit is? So the earned income credit is, at, at, at its heart, a welfare credit to help families earning under a certain level, um, mild, low to moderate income levels, um, that extra bit they need to, to stay on top of all their bills throughout the year. And this earned income credit is based mostly on your adjusted gross income and any qualifying dependents that you have. So that earned income credit can increase or will, will decrease as your income goes up, which is why these cash businesses that make smaller amounts of money look very suspicious in the eyes of the IRS. And what is it that they will, so for example, if uh, purchasing, right? So if you're claiming a certain amount of income yet, your purchases are of a certain amount. Does that raise a red flag? And how would the IRS know about your purchasing patterns? The IRS 
will generally flag that return based on the amount of credit you're receiving, especially with refundable credits that you're receiving back. And they'll see that you're self-employed, but they're not getting any type of documentation sent to them like they would if you drove for mm -hmm. one of the rideshare companies. You're going to get a 1099. The IRS is going to get a matching 1099. So they'll get people with refundable credits where you're getting money back that you didn't pay in, and then they'll have no matching record of the income that you made. That's really what flags people. So with the with the cash, cash businesses, for the most part, IRS doesn't have a, a, a way to tracking it prior to exam, um, audit. So it's also called exam. So people that are paid under the table, it there really isn't a way for the IRS to just know about it. They do have a lot of access to things like registration, uh, vehicle registrations. Um, they can get into a lot of asset searches, but it really hits people when they go into an exam or an audit and then the IRS will do a bank account analysis. Any deposit in that bank account, they're going to assume is gross income. Mm -hmm. And then that's where people get in trouble. The alternative is, they're not depositing anything and they they were in the sweet spot for their earned income tax credit, you have to prove that you earn that income. So if they zero out your income, now you're not eligible for that credit. And so we see that's we actually see that just as much as we see people that are not claiming enough of the income they're generating. That they were we um, one example is a, a client that did house cleaning and didn't really keep record. It was just kind of like came in, cleaned, they gave her cash and left. And and so she was denied, they zeroed out her income and then denied all of the refundable credits, which she needed in order to pay her rent. So it can get people into these really sticky situations. And it's, you know, it, it's claiming the income just as much as it is trying to avoid claiming the income. Now, what about if you are uh, a waiter or a waitress mm -hmm. uh, at uh, at the restaurant where you uh, get a minimal salary, mm -hmm. uh, but then uh, your in your the rest of your income comes from tips that uh, that you receive from uh, patrons in that uh, in in that business, and typically that's cash. Mm -hmm. Uh, although sometimes it will be recorded in terms of a credit card mm -hmm. voucher, something like that. But that uh, you know, the notion that well, this is uh, invisible money. It, it's typically not going to be. There aren't a lot of people that just take that cash and stiff, stuff it into their mattress anymore. I mean, there's probably still a few, but the um, the businesses have implemented different things because they can get into just as much trouble mm -hmm. if they have an employee that they're not paying the right amount of employment tax for. And so they don't like that notion that maybe the employee's getting a benefit, but there's also this other issue. So they've, um, what I've seen more recently are companies will just kind of as assume or average, I'm not sure the formula they actually use, but they'll put on the, the uh, wage earners forms an amount for the tips. They say, look, they average $80 in tips a night. We're just going to put that as part of their paycheck. That way stuff gets withheld. It gets paid over. They don't end up with a bill and we don't get hit for not paying our side of the employment taxes. So the moral of the story is that uh, 
none of this money is invisible. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you try to pull one over on the IRS, you will most likely lose mm -hmm. and you will lose big. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, because uh, you're going to remember those penalties are accruing from the time it was due. So if you did this, you know, if it if they think it might be fraudulent, they can go back six years and then they say, well, you didn't pay us five years ago. So now you're going to pay us that plus all the interest and penalties that have accrued since then. So it'll it'll add up and they'll get theirs. Which oftentimes will subsume what oh. you actually we have from now set. We have a lot of clients that come in and just say, if they'll just get rid of the interest and penalties, I can afford to make the, the yeah. payment. Mm -hmm. like, I mean, maybe the penalties we can help with, but that interest, it's it's virtually impossible to get off. So mm -hmm. what other types of clients' uh, issues do you mm -hmm. see that you'd like to just kind of share with the general public just to be mindful of this uh, for, and if it's not, you know, that person, maybe people within their families. One other thing I want to add to the self-employment, because we that's really one of our biggest issues right now. We have a lot of people that have these side hustles and are just not really paying attention to things. Um, you don't have to have some form of an entity, you know, like a, a company, a corporation, it's you can easily just accidentally begin be, begin generating income and become self-employed. Um, there's also a statute that requires strict substantiation, which means you have to have a record, and mileage is one of those. So you have to keep a log. Some of the companies, like Uber and Lyft, um, they come to our our tax events and talk to us about what they're doing, and they have really nice, robust analysis they give at the end of the year that say this is what we tracked while the app was on and it's very helpful it's not comprehensive you could have probably taken more but at least gives you a record um, we also have we've had a lot of um, over-the-road truck drivers come in lately and they're usually self-employed and their big thing is the mileage log and per diem so that's something else that people can take that they don't always think about um, and when you say per diem, so you're working, you're on the road, mm -hmm. and you need to grab lunch. And so it's not something that you can do at home or... Yeah, or so lunch is a little different, okay. but uh, it's it's an allocated amount for food and lodging. And the government sets that. So you can do actual expenses or you can just use this per diem, and um, it's a little bit easier. I like to use the standards because people aren't great about keeping records and using something like the mileage or the per diem, you don't have to substantiate. The government just says, okay, you can use this or you can prove that you use something else. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's easier to just say, I'm gonna take the mileage. All right. Okay, we're, we're, we're out of time. There's so much more that we could uh, talk about uh, here and uh, we may wanna have you back uh, again. Uh, that's for for you all, before our listening audience, if you have any questions, you need to get in contact with uh, Matthew and Jonathan to find out what it is that they can do uh, for you because the IRS doesn't play. So thank you two both again for taking time out of your day and spending it with us. Attorney Matthew James, Director of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, Low Income Taxpayer Clinic, and Attorney Jonathan Kerr, a recent graduate of our fine institution, who is the fellow at the Taxpayer Clinic. And we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email 
You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And we're happy to announce that you can now find this show in podcast form wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.